Alrighty, got me. Hey, hey, good to have your company this afternoon. I am excited to be sharing with you today. And um, for those who don't know me, my name's Mick, and uh, I've had the privilege of serving as an elder here for a number of years. I was trying to figure out how many. I think it's about six or seven now, but I'm not sure. Um, and I've served as a worship leader for a couple of years longer than that as well. So, but when we first started coming here at Calvary, uh, it was when we met back at the at the Scout Hall. Um, a couple of you will remember that. It was dirty. Uh, it was grimy. It was a lot of fun. And uh, you know there were about 15 or 20 people on any given Sunday. And um, but this this church, this fellowship, fellowship, it soon became our family. Um, Kendall and I uh, became engaged about a month after we started coming along to Cal's and, uh, and married later that year. Lindy sang at our wedding. Um, we went you know, running to our mates when we found out all of a sudden we were pregnant um, unexpectedly. Um, our mates from Calvary. And um, look, we've helped countless people move house and had plenty of help ourselves, including a disastrous move from Tari back to Newcastle last earlier this year, last year, late last year. Our four kids have grown up here, our closest friends are here, and so it's always a privilege to be able to teach and to be serving here in that capacity. Um, but it is great to be getting into the scriptures together, the Savo, and I've got to say I'm, I'm pretty excited when I think about what it is that God's going to teach us today. Because for a little while now I've been, I've been going through First John and as I've been preparing over the last couple of weeks for this message, it's, it's just really, it's hit me. Um, and I pray that God will just, just hit us today. That his spirit will come and it will, it will teach us something that we need to hear um, as individuals, but also as a, as a body of believers. If you want to get ready, just uh, tap or flip your way over to First John chapter 2. We'll, we'll go there in a second. Um, but the missionary thing, I, I remember a few years back, back in um, Dave Durkin's um, downstairs shed, and um, we had our, our men's group there. We're talking about, we kind of came up with this word, um, uh, that kind of described, I guess, helped us to describe what it was to do mission in Australia. Uh, and the word was Australistan. And basically, Australistan was our version of Australia that's, that was supposed to be foreign to us. You know, so we're, we're supposed to treat Australia as if it's a foreign country. Um, and so we thought we, you know, we should think about ourselves as ambassadors of God's kingdom to this nation of Australistan. And, and we're called not to get too comfortable. Uh, it's possible we might get treated badly for our efforts, we might face some resistance. But we also have a pretty clear mission. And so we're going to have a little look at that today. But first, let's pray together and just invite God to speak to us now. Father, we just, we just invite you now by your Spirit to minister to us. Lord, we, um, we are saved by grace. We're saved by your goodness and your mercy. Saved by your Son who paid the ultimate price and we are just so, so grateful, Lord God. We are grateful for everything you've done, everything you continue to do. Pray that you would use us, Lord, to reach this dying world. And, uh, Lord, that you would use me now to preach your word in truth, Lord God, not just to avoid error, but to, to enter into what it is that you have for us, God. To enter into something that you might be even now, preparing us to hear. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. As I said, John, 1 John chapter 2, so it's the epistle of John. I like the word epistle. It kind of sounds like you're saying a rude word in church. Um, but you're not. 
Uh, before we dive into today's text, though, I think it's worth just thinking together about where it is that John's coming from at this point. Because we've talked previously about the fact that he's, he's like super old when he writes this epistle. He's, he's uh, around the 90 kind of mark. Um, and in fact, these are some of the last bits of Scripture that have ever been written. Uh, and John is the only one of the apostles left. The rest have been killed for their faith. Uh, and he's living back in ex- Eph- Ephesus. After his exile on the Isle of Patmos, the emperor Domitian dies uh, and, and John goes back to live in Ephesus, which is the, the church that he'd been living in prior to his exile. He, he started in Jerusalem, moved over to Ephesus, and this is his church that he just has this deep affection for. Um, and he's been through a lot himself that could have killed him. You know, he's been burned in oil, he's been in a shipwreck, he's been stoned, he's been persecuted, the list goes on. But this old man, he's nearing the end of his, his natural life. And he's desperate to convey to this audience, we don't know specifically who, the letter's not addressed, but probably a a particular church there in Western Turkey, modern-day Western Turkey. Um, And he's desperate to get this message to them about who this Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And so there's a number of purposes John has in writing this letter. You'll see in chapter 1, verse 4, he says, so that the joy of both John and his audience would be full, um, so that they would not practice sin, so that you who believe in the name of the Son of God may know that you have eternal life. In other words, it's to impart joy to the believers, to encourage holiness among believers, and to shore up the confidence and assurance of believers. But he's also trying to convey to them the core messages of the faith, who Jesus is, what it means to be a child of God. But to really understand John and this letter, I think we need to go back to the very beginning, to his understanding of this Jesus that he was serving and that he was writing about, and that he was, he was preaching about. This understanding was profoundly shaped by an experience that we read back in Matthew 17. We know it as the transfiguration, but let me just read that story out. Matthew 17, you can follow along if you'd like, but just hold your place in First John, because we'll get back there shortly. Matthew 17, it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. You'll notice at this point that Peter is one of those people that talks a lot when he's nervous. Yeah, I think some of us can relate to that. He's seeing these weird things happening. He's feeling a bit nervous and his mouth just starts moving. He says, I'll build you a tent. No, wait, that's silly. I'll build you three tents. On the inside, he's just thinking, Peter, just, just shut up. But Jesus is just looking at him with this glowing face. It's just like, slow down, Turbo. But anyway, they don't get to finish the tent discussion because at this point, Peter is interrupted by this cloud. In fact, in verse 5, we read that he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Just imagine being John in that situation. What would that be like? How would you feel? You know, you've walked up this mountain probably as you've done many times with Jesus before, but this time's different. All of a sudden, out of the blue, your teacher just starts shining. 
like the sun, so bright you can't even look directly at him. And then this cloud engulfs you, but it's not a dark cloud, it's, it's a bright cloud is what the text says, it's a bright cloud. So somehow it overshadows you though, so it's a weird cloud, right? And you hear this voice, the voice of God the Father, and he's talking about this man you've been following for the past couple of years, and God says, this is my son, listen to him. How would you feel? How would you feel about that man? And then to go on to see him crucified, to see him raised again. What would you do with this Jesus? And this, this is the Jesus that John is desperate to tell people about. He's the Jesus that he pens his letters about. The Jesus who is God, but he's also a friend, who is immensely powerful, but also who died on a piece of timber in a muddy hill. So let's go to the text, 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Stop there for a second. I'll just get my place back. Today's entire passage from verses 7 to 17 we're going to try and get to can really be broken up into four subheadings. Number one, the commandment, and that's what we're looking at at the moment, verses 7 and 8. Number two, the test, verses 9 to 11. Number three, some encouragement from verses 12 to 14. And number four, an exhortation, verses 15 to 17. So clearly this section is the commandment, and we need to stop at this point and ask a few questions. Number one, what is the commandment? Number two, how is the commandment both old and new? And number three, what is the relationship between the light and the darkness and the new, new commandment somehow becoming true? Right? It's a bit clunky, we're going to look into that. First, the commandment, what is the commandment? Let's look at some other places where John himself addresses this topic. First, in the next chapter of this book, 1 John 3.11, for this is the message, message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Then in the next book, 2 John, chapter five, 2 John verse 5, there are no chapters in 2 John, and now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And now in John's Gospel, John 13, verses 34 and onwards, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. So it seems pretty clear to me that the commandment that's spoken of here is to love one another. And you might add, just as Christ has loved you. Second, how, how is it both old and new? It's not a contradiction. It's a deliberate contrast, I think, to get the hearer just paying attention, to, to, to focus in. There's no contradiction since it's old and new in different senses. In the same way as I might say we bought a new car, it's not a contradiction if you then find out that it's a few years old with 100,000 kilometres on the clock. Okay. it's not newly made and therefore it's old in one sense, but in another sense it's new to me. This commandment to love, it's kind of the same but opposite in that it is old to these believers but new in the grand scheme of history of God's redemptive plan. Let's unpack that a bit. First, it's old and then it's old to them. As we read, this, wor- this was the word that you had at the beginning. Word is, is from the Greek word logos, um, which can mean different things in different contexts. It's a, it's a really common word in Greek literature and in, and in, the, and in the Scriptures. 
Um, you re- recall that in John 1, 1, it's applied to Jesus. In Achi, in Logos, in the beginning was the Word. Um, and, and, and it goes on to say, you know, and, and the Logos, He dwelt with men. Uh, in, other, in other places, it, it means Scripture. So, um, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, even to penetrating between soul and spirit. Uh, but in this, it's a, it's a more basic kind of meaning. The word here just means message. All right, so the word of God is, is, is message here. And, and so it refers to the gospel message that brought Christians into belief in Jesus in the first place. And so what John is saying is that from the very inception of your faith, this commandment has applied. There was never a time as a Christian where to love one another did not apply. It's as old as the gospel itself. Jesus says that to follow Him requires love. Not that our love earns us anything, but that's a natural consequence of our own realisation of God's love for us and our receipt of the gift of new life. We love, why do we love? Because He first loved us. Have you ever been in a situation where you just felt loved by someone? I remember when I was in Bible college, um, I was not long out of high school and there was this guy there who I just really looked up to. Uh, he had this lovely wife, three kids, uh, and I would just rock up to the house, in retrospect, probably at all the worst times. You know, uh, I would kind of read the kids a story or, or I'd kind of throw them in the air, hype them up before bed. Um, and I'm thinking now, man, that must have been a pain in the neck, hey? Um, but I, I was figuring some stuff out as a new, as a new Christian as a, a new follower of Christ anyway, and I was, tr- I was trying to figure out what a, a life of service to God looked like. I, was, I had questions, I had some doubts, I had some scriptural kind of concerns, some fears, and he, he, this guy, he just gave me all the time I needed. He was just so gracious. It never once was an inconvenience to him, even if it was, that I was there. He just sat with me. He just sat and he listened He gave encouragement. This guy who probably had a hundred other things he could be doing gave me the time I needed when I felt loved. This guy, before that, he'd been a plumber and he had this experience of just feeling called to take this faith seriously. He was faithful to that call and, you know, he was moved by what God had done for him. He was moved by the fact that God had shown him grace, that God had shown him new life. And it was his desire to to go and to share that same message with other people. And last I heard, he was serving the Lord in Central Australia somewhere. Um, But for that period of time, he had had this impact on me. And that's going to last. I want to be like that. Can you think of someone who's been like that for you? Do you want to be like that? That's how I want to be remembered. When it it comes to to the end of my life, and people look back, and, and, and I'm at my funeral in a casket, and people are, are talking about me, I don't want them to say how great I was at doing X, Y, or Z, I just want them to feel loved, to feel like they're remembering a person who loved them. But so often I get caught up in my own world, in my own plans, and I think probably a lot of you can relate. But God has done something in us. He's shown us grace. He calls us to be that person for those around us. So we've seen how this command for, to love is old. It's imperative. It's at the core of our very belief system to love one another. But in what sense is it new? Well, I think 
to answer that, we have to go back to Jesus' words in John's Gospel again, in John 13, where Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. This is, this is a new command, right? This is not an old command, this is a new command. It's radical in its time. Up until this point, we have the Ten Commandments, we have the law, and these commandments and the law, they show us where we've fallen short. They show us, not only we've fallen short, but they show us how to get along as people generally in society. And, and for the nation of Israel, they showed them how to do that as well. You know, we have in Exodus 20, we see, honour your father and your mother. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. But Jesus now says, love others as I have loved you. So we need to ask, how has Jesus loved us? Well, in the context of John 13, when he's giving that message, it's, it's at the Last Supper. And you remember the disciples are arguing at that stage about who, who will be the greatest in, you know, in the kingdom of heaven. Who's going to be the greatest? Um, and at this point, what does Jesus do? Do you remember? He, he washes their feet, exactly. He kneels down and he gets on the towel and he washes their filthy feet, the job of a servant. And he says an interesting thing at that point. He says, what I am doing now, you do not understand. But afterward, you will understand. And he teaches them that to be great requires being a servant. And do you remember, it's that very night where Jesus is betrayed. And he says to the disciples, where I am going, you cannot come. And that's when he gives this new commandment. And he goes on to teach, as John records, including the statement in John 15, greater love has no one than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends. So this is the new kind of love in Jesus' words and in the words of John, sacrificial love. It goes beyond the don'ts. Don't do this, don't do that. And seeks to lay down oneself for our friends, our neighbours, our brothers, all terms that in this context are used interchangeably. The question I have is, how might this look in our fellowship? In Calvary Chapel, Newcastle, in my life, how might this look? I look back at times when it has been done really well. It's dynamic, isn't it? Do you remember, do you remember moments when this has happened? It deepens relationships. It reflects the nature of Jesus in us and it makes us the envy of a world that is choking on selfishness. And then I look back at where I've failed in this call and I think, how can I do this better? Not because it earns something with God, because it doesn't. But because He loves us. Again, He loves us. He loves us. And I want to share that love. So what is God saying to us about this right now? If we can sense His Spirit prompting us, and I encourage you to do it, what is He saying? What is He asking us to do as a church? And how do we even have the power to do that? Which leads us on to the third question, and that is, what is the relationship between light, darkness, and the fact that this new commandment is somehow becoming true? First, you need to concentrate a bit here because the way the Greek is laid out makes it difficult to figure out exactly what is causing what here, but what it's saying is that something is making this commandment to love sacrificially true in you, us, and in Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it means that there is something that causes this command to become a reality. In other words, that it's actually possible for us to love each other like this. And what is it that provides this possibility? It's the fact that the darkness is already passing away and the light is already shining. What does that mean? 
I talked in an earlier message about what this light is, and you can look it up later if you like, but basically light in this context, it refers to two things, God's goodness and truth. What does it mean that this light is shining? It means that God has already conquered death, that Jesus' death on the cross was all that is required for victory. Yes, there is still a story that will unfold, but that victory is already won. And it's only in the light of this victory that this commandment becomes a legitimate reality in the life of believers. Jesus said at the end of John's Gospel, He said, As the Father has sent me, do you remember? As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And you remember what He does then? He he breathes on them and He he offers that, that, that promise of His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that would indwell them, that would give them the power over selfishness and the power over sin. So now that John has shared the commandment, he moves on to provide this test of the believer. Verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The first point here is we have a bit of a, a Christianese alert okay, um, namely the word abide. I don't know how often you use that word outside of the church. I tend not to use the word abide outside of church. Um, now, that would be fine for, for words with kind of special theological significance, words like propitiation or sanctification or in any other words that end in Asian, generally speaking. Um, but abide is not one of those words. In the Greek, it's just the word meno, and it just literally means stay or remain. Okay, so I thought I'd try out the word abide in the real world, so I texted my twin brother, um, who's coming to stay with me in a couple of weeks' time, and I just texted him, I said, hey Tim, looking forward to having you guys abide with us. And, uh, <laughs> he just kind of ignored me. Uh, so we'll just use the word stay or remain, all right? But here we see the test. This is the third of three tests in the, in the, in, in the first epistle of John. It's the first of three tests of a genuine believer um, that John provides in this letter. I've, um, I've talked previously about the test of doctrine in 1.6 uh, and the test of obedience to God in 2.4, but this is the test of love. And arguably, I think it's probably the most difficult test. We see here that hate is the evidence of spiritual blindness. Have you ever spent time with a self-professed Christian and all of a sudden you kind of pick up that they're really harboring a lot of hatred towards someone? I don't know if that's ever happened for you, it's happened for me. Uh, I'm talking to someone who who claims to be a Christian and you pretty soon realise that there's some real hate in there. And at that point, you kind of, your senses go up a little bit, don't don't they? You think something just doesn't add up here. Um, I'm not talking about a reasoned disagreement with someone, that's something different, but hatred. There's no room in the heart for both ongoing hatred and ongoing love. And love is the mark of God's followers. We need to be really careful of this, especially in the world of of YouTube Christian celebrities, right? And and, and these anti-everybody-else's-church-style websites or YouTube channels run by people with zero accountability, right? Sadly, what seems to get the most attention is is so-called Christian number one owns so-called Christian number two, Yeah? Um, Bob owns Bill, you know, 3,000 likes, and you're like, really? You know, I, I'm embarrassed sometimes by, by the, the content that comes up in my, in my feed, in my suggestions list on YouTube. 
I mean, I love watching debates. You know, this is one of my little, one of my little hobbies is to watch debates versus almost anybody. But the stuff that comes up and you're like, man, you just you hate Christians. And they claim to be Christians. We need to remember one thing, and that's even if we disagree with each other, that's still our family. Our family extends beyond the walls of this little congregation. It extends to the entire worldwide church. They are our family. You know, um, in the last couple of weeks, I just want to tell you a little story. Raph, uh, our number two, our oldest, uh, second son, and Amira, our oldest daughter, um, at school this week, Raph had a... Um, he's nine, she's seven. Raphael had a, a business day type thing where they had spent weeks and weeks preparing. They had to sell something. had to sell something that uh, in, included recycled materials. And um, if you know anything about Raphael, you know that he just loves gardening, right? He just, my. Like most kids, they'll idolise Jonathan Thurston. You know, I'm pretty sure he idolises Don Burke. You know, he's just one of these kids who just, he just loves gardening. He's a green thumb. He does not inherit that from me. He gets it from Kendall. Uh, I kill everything I touch. But, um, he had to, they had to make these things. So he decided he's going to make a little hydroponic, little hydroponic setups, right? So with little, um, he's, he's nine, right? So these little um, bottle things, like pet bottles, 1.25 litre bottles, and, uh, and there's water in the bottom, and they're cut into pieces, and he, he's decorated them all with, um, with paint work and all that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, he did inherit his artistic ability from me, so they, they didn't look great, let's say. Um, if only he got the art from Kendall as well, but he, he, it's this, they didn't look fantastic. Now, Kendall and I weren't able to go to this particular day. We're both working, it's a new job for me, and, uh, and we felt kind of pretty bad about it, I did, I, I wanted to get along. Um, but he's there, and they've all got their little stalls, and all, all the kids in all the other years have money to spend on these stalls. And Raphael is there, and he's, he's, he's selling his trade, and he... he um, he just, loves, he just loves this stuff, you know. And he's, he's poured his heart and his soul into this little project. And, um, and I'm, I guess I'm feeling a bit worried that maybe no one is going to buy him, you know. Uh, but the first child to buy his little, his little thing, before I say that, no, the first child to buy it was Amira, our daughter, Right? And she, and it, it just like, wow, like, that's love, you know. I, I don't think, I don't know if she really loved it or not. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I honestly don't know. I don't know, but she loves him, you know. She loves him. And, uh, you know, you see plenty of opportunity as a parent to see kids not getting along, right. And any parent of more than one child will, will attest to that, kids not getting along. But, this family love, this love that you have for your family, that is the kind of love that we are called to have for each other. You know, that, that love that gives up something. She could have bought, she's a sweet tooth like me. She, she gets that from me. She, she could have bought lollies and there was plenty of it around, I tell you. But she didn't. She bought Raph's thing and he was over the moon. Um, I, it, it made me feel obviously pretty proud, pretty happy, you know, and, and that's my kids. Imagine how God feels when he looks down at us and sees us loving each other. You know, how the Father looks down. He doesn't see our faults. 
He's chosen not to see that. He looks down, he doesn't see the faults anymore. What he sees is what we do that is in character with his son. And he looks down and he sees us loving each other. And I, I, think, I think it makes him happy, honestly, I do. We have to ask why at this point, though, does John give this warning about hatred as well? Um, I, I think there's two reasons for this warning. Um, one is to teach us to exercise wisdom in our dealings with self, self-professed Christians who harbour hatred and therefore aren't what they appear. It is okay to distance ourselves from those who, be, who we believe are false. It's okay to do that. Um, we, we've got to balance this with grace. You know, as, as we're all working this stuff out together, as we're all working out our doctrine, as we're all working out um, what it means to follow Jesus, we've got to balance that with grace. And particularly for new believers, we've got to balance it with grace. But, but it's okay to, to have that distance. The other reason, I think, for pointing this out is so that we can avoid falling into this error ourselves. The New Testament is full of warning verses that warn against rejecting what we hold to be true in belief or in action, regardless of our view on the perseverance of the saints and whether you believe one can lose salvation or that one can lose their witness or that there's some other reason for the warning verses. I think we need to take these verses seriously. On the topic of love, Jesus himself says in Matthew 24, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let us be those who endure to the end. Just like with John's other tests, he's very black and white here, because what he's measuring is the the habitual behaviour of Christians. Of course there'll be times when Christians still awaiting perfection will fail in this. And I'll keep coming back to this reality. Paul mentions it repeatedly, and even John himself, in chapter 2, verse 1, just before this text, he says that even if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So if we feel guilt about times of harboring resentment, good. Let God use that guilt, that true guilt to lead us to repentance and to mould us into the image of His Son who demonstrated what it was to love His enemy, let alone your family. But now for some encouragement, verse 12, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. I'm writing to your fathers because you know Him who was from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is, who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. A couple of things we need to address here. First, little children. It's not literally little children. It's a translation of technion, which itself is a... a, a Diminutive form, in other words, it's, like a, it's a mini form of, of the word for children, technum. Um, in English, we have similar kind of uh, similar words, or similar kind of endings to words or starts to words, like the word like mini. You might go to the mini mart, um, or or et, a booklet, a small book, uh, or you know, someone might be called Matty instead of Matt. Matty, it's a diminutive form, or or John might be called Jono. It's a, and again a diminutive form. In this instance, it would be actually like us saying kiddos, right? It's, it's like John saying, "Hey, kiddos." but it's less, less colloquial than that. So he's more just saying, my, my little children, you know, my, he's showing affection to them, to these children. Remember that he's super old, he's writing to these people who are his children in the faith and he cares for them deeply and so he calls them his children, but he also wants to make sure that there is no misunderstanding. So after addressing all believers, which is that, that first category, remember there's, there's three categories there, after addressing all believers, he includes those who are both mature in the faith, the fathers, and those who are newer in the faith, which is the young men. 
Again, that, young, that word young men is one word. It could just mean youngsters. Um, you'll notice that he seems to repeat himself here, and, and the second time around, it almost seems redundant. Why does he say almost the same thing again? I, I think there is a reason, but it's going to require a little bit of concentration to understand. You'll notice that the first time through, John identifies three different truths about the three group, groups. Number one, your sins are forgiven. That's everyone. Number two, you know God. That's the, the mature, the fathers. And number three, you have overcome the evil one. That's the youngsters. The second time through, if you look at the text, he changes it up. For everyone, you know God. That's everyone. For the mature, you know God. But it's said in a different way. And for the youngsters, you'd expect him at this point to say, you know God, right? Or something to that effect. But he gives three statements instead. He said, you are strong. The word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. Why? I think it's because John is equating knowing God with those three truths. To be strong is to know God. To overcome the evil one is to know God. And to have His Word remaining in you is to know Him. This is what it means to know God. It means we have His Word abiding in us. It means we are strong. We have past tense overcome the evil one. What an encouragement this is to me. We are already victorious. And our ongoing task is simply to know Him and to keep on knowing Him. And so with that encouragement complete, He continues to an exhortation. Verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's a simple exhortation, isn't it? The exhortation is, do not love the world. And yet I think it's probably one of the most challenging exhortations we can have in this life. In a world that's intent on ignoring the reality of our own mortality and filling our lives with pleasure, with comfort, with ease, and anything else that can distract us from the nature of our present circumstances, it's so easy to love the world. Is it any wonder that in the advanced societies, Christian growth has stagnated? The proportion of people in Australia who claim no religion, it continues to rise. Now, I would suggest that the majority of these are not atheists, actually. They're not. They're not even particularly hostile to Christianity. They're what I call apathists. They just don't care. They're dead to their spiritual condition. And while Christianity as a total percentage of belief in the West has frozen... Not so in the less wealthy countries. For instance, quoting from CBN, in 1900 there were approximately 10 million Christians in Africa. By 2000 there were 360 million. In 2025, conservative estimates see that number rising to 633 million. Those same estimates put the number of Christians in Latin America in 2025 at 640 million and in Asia at 460 million. Why is this so? Because in all of these places, people are acutely aware of their own mortality. Has the reality of, of, of the mortality of those in the advanced West changed? No, of course it hasn't. We all meet the same physical end. It's so because we have spent decades developing a system that tries to numb ourselves to the reality of death. And what is the main reason that John provides for not loving the world? That the love of the Father is not in him. 
Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and, in this case, money. So in the context of what we've looked at today, how does this play out in the reality of this church in this world? You see, this world is full of people who are desperate to be loved. And there are people out there who are struggling. There are people out there who are hurting. There are people out there who have been through much worse than you and I could possibly imagine. But what do they need? They need to be loved. And we had that answer. But my question is, what impression does the church, does this church, this worldwide church, give to the world? I think we're at risk of being remembered for the wrong things. At the moment, Christianity is, is most on spotlight for its stance on certain moral issues. Now, that's okay. I actually agree with the church on this. Those who stand up for what is right, they need our support. They do. The people fighting for the lives of the unborn, they need our support. It's right and good to stand up against injustice when we see it, even if it makes us unpopular. But that should not be our defining characteristic. I've just started a new job and, and there's this GP there who has, who has a mouth like a pirate. And um, Julie will know exactly who I'm talking about. And, uh, and he finds out that I'm a Christian because we're comparing kids' names and my kids all have Hebrew names that have kind of special meanings. And, and, and the next time he starts swearing, going off his head, he looks at me and goes, oh, sorry. Like this. I'm like, man, it's okay, I'm, I'm not that easily offended. And there's like this look of, of relief that crossed his face. And I'm like, a Christian's known as the swear police? Seriously? But, <laughs> seriously, I, I think... When Jesus said, this is how people will know that you're my disciples, what was his answer? Was it because you, you made the best YouTube clips defending your faith? Was it because you had the most internally consistent moral system? Was it because you had sweet memes flowing around on Twitter? Was it because you had the most entertaining church service? No, it was by the love that you had one for another. How do we get this love for one another? How do we develop that affection I don't know if, if anyone here has been on a mission trip, like a short-term mission trip before. Yeah, uh, see a few nods. Anyone's been a part of a mission organization? Um, I don't know if you remember how it felt when you started the trip and when you ended the trip, how you felt about those people you were doing mission with. Often to start with, they're complete strangers. Now, by the end of that trip, you just love those guys. You're a, you're a, you're a team. You're a unit. You care about what happens to them. Now, imagine a sports team, okay? What is it that bonds you together as a team? It's not your fancy uniform. It's not the halftime orange rosters, you know? It's not the, it's not the, it's not the way you look when you, when you come onto the field. It's not, it's, not your, it's not anything except for, as a sports team, your shared purpose of kicking butt and scoring goals, right? Some will say it's about having fun. Well, I say it's a heck of a lot more fun when you're winning, Right? <laughs> But that is the purpose of a sports team. The purpose is together to try and win. Now, imagine a sports team where you get your gear on, you train in your own time, you do your warm-ups, you have half-time oranges, the whole works, but you never actually play a game together. How long is that team going to last? Not long, I'd suggest. But it's the same with the church. Our purpose is mission. Yes, there is also sweet fellowship in doing ministry together, where we minister to one another, but even that is to build one another up for the sake of mission. 
It's as we work together towards a common goal that would develop that affection. And interestingly, one of the best ways to achieve that mission is to love one another. So it goes around full circle. This is what will change people's minds about the church. For two reasons. People look in on the church and they see the affection that we have for one another and they want a piece of it. Number one. Number two, the love that we have for one another will inevitably flow out of us to the people around us. Have you ever met someone who was like a really super nice person, you know, and you're like, like, not like a weird nice person, but like an actual nice person who actually liked them, and you're like, wow, that person's amazing, you know? And then maybe, you know, you met a sibling of that person, you're like, wow, that person is also a really nice person. This is amazing. What are the odds? Two siblings. But then, you know, maybe a couple of years later, you meet the family that, that those, two, those two came from. And you're like, it makes sense now. I get it. That's why they're nice people, because their parents are awesome, you know? Um, that's how it is for the church. It's when our family is together, when we're cohesive, when we're loving each other, when we're building one another up in love and in good works, that's when we go out and we are loving. We have the ability to do it, the capacity to do it. That's the way God set it up. It doesn't mean that we have to start a whole bunch of evangelistic programs to do mission. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you need to be the, the, the divine spawn of, you know, Ravi Zacharias, of William Lane Craig and, and Mother Teresa all rolled into one. Okay, you, you just have to do something. Something. Something little. It means we need to spur one another on to love and to good works. It means we need to be spending time with each other and with unbelievers. And I'm pleased to say it's already happening right here in this church. As I've said, I just started that new GP job um, at Awabakal, and it so happens that Julie is also a GP there. Um, anyway, I don't want to embarrass her, but I, I was chatting to this same Swearfest GP uh, and a couple of the, the staff members the other day, and they were talking about Julie. Uh, and there was this, this great affection in the words that they had for her. And when they started talking about her going overseas, you, you could see them being visibly sad that she was going. The good news is, it's not only her. We've got Dave Bonzo. I don't know if he is here today, but Dave Bonzo is a psychologist there, right? And he, again, is really well respected. Then you've got uh, other Christians, not just from this church. You've got, you've got um, a Christian from Hunter Bible Church, a, a sister who is just lovely, super smart, and, and the people love her. She's bouncy, you know. Um, and then Matt Lovegrove's sister's there as well. All Christians, all believers, all loving on people. You know, you think, this is what it means to bring the church to the world. And then they find out we're Christians. And, uh, and, and again, Paul Hickson, he's, he's bricky, came and did some work for us the other day. And he was just raving about Paul Hickson. Love working with a guy, reminiscing about old jobs they did together. He's a bricky, you know? It's like, Wow. When these guys, they get on the internet and they see some, some Christian hater saying that Christians are haters, they're like, that's not my experience of Christians. You know, it's not. Is that how it is in your workplace? Or with your unbelieving family? I want that to be me. But the fact is we're a work in progress it's a defining characteristic that we are a work in progress. We will fall, we will fail, we will mess up. We don't have the right words to answer that tough question all the time. There are times when it all seems a bit hard. But we need to remember it's not our fight. It's not. 
It's not a fight that we, we, we invite Jesus to join and just hope that he shows up. It's his fight. It's his fight. We're simply along for the ride. And, and the fact is, he wants to use us. And the only question remains is, do we want to be used by him? I've got a good friend, and we're going to wrap it up here, but I've got a good friend in the States who, who wrote a song about this. And as we finish, I, just, I guess I just want to read it out to you. You know, if the task of loving each other seems too difficult, you're in good company because it's tough. Love is not easy. It never was. Just look at Jesus. Do you remember what it says when Jesus, it says, why did he endure the cross? It wasn't just for obedience. It was for what was set set before him. There is a purpose in the pain. It's Jesus who does the work. It's his power. I'm going to read this song. Scott Cunningham, some of you know him, is a friend over in the States. He's um, a worship leader and a songwriter over there. And uh, it's just been really speaking to me this week and it's kind of on this topic of, of just really falling in with God's plan and, and realising the purposes that God has for us. So it's called What He's Begun. God has not forgetten, forgotten. God will not forget your work, your labour of love as He keeps what we commit. And all that he has promised and all that he has done affirms his main intention that Christ completes what he's begun. For even if we fail and sin with great regrets, God's purpose can't be thwarted no matter what the threat. The devil cannot touch us, for we hide in Christ the Son. Our victory is certain. Christ completes what he's begun. For even if our sorrow does drown the light of day, and even if my faithless heart still drifts along the way, the shepherd leaves the number to go and find the one to bring back what was missing. Christ completes what he's begun. And oh, the love that took the nails that bore the cross and still prevails, he will finish what he's begun. Our future is forever, our eternity revealed. For with his promised spirit, his possession he has sealed. If it were up to me now to finish well this run, I surely would be shaken. But Christ completes what he's begun. He will finish what he's begun. Consider Christ the servant as he stoops to wash our feet. Consider Christ the triumph who knows not one defeat. Consider Christ our comfort who brings healing in our pain. Consider Christ the King who is staged to come again. Consider Christ our shepherd leading on his precious flock. Consider Christ our friend who comes along our side to walk. Consider Christ our wisdom who still counsels us so wise. Consider Christ our vision who predicted he would rise. Consider Christ the lion as he reigns majestically. Consider Christ the lamb as he suffered Calvary. Consider Christ our victor, with all his battles won. Consider Christ our sovereign, for he completes what he's begun. Let's pray. Father, it's my prayer that you would do that in us, Lord God. That you would complete that work, that you would carry it on to completion. As it said in Philippians, Lord God, you would carry that good work to completion at the day of Christ. Father, we desire to be used by you and... Um, And in these imperfect bodies, in these imperfect minds, Lord, um, we wish to serve you. And you tell us the best way we can love you is by loving each other. And so, Lord, I pray for this little family that you would just develop in us a love for one another. 
that by your supernatural power, Lord God, you would, you would spur us on to love one another. Lord, that you would do this work in us and we, we hold on to that promise that you will complete what you've begun. And Lord, as we go and we fellowship now, I just pray that you would be with us, you would be in our conversations, Lord God. You would go with us this week to reach a dying world with the love of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.